You're listening to the Cyberwire Network, powered by N2K. And now, a message from Cyberbit. Mastering cybersecurity is like mastering a sport. You build muscle memory through rigorous practice. Then you train as a team to foster cohesion while operating under pressure. Like athletes, cybersecurity professionals thrive on hands-on simulation. But traditional courses, certifications, and open-source labs won't build you a winning team. You need Cyberbit. Cyberbit offers a hyper-realistic simulation environment for your SOC, IR, and C-suite to refine your skills. All using the market-leading SIMs, EDRs, firewalls, and WAFs they use every day. Cyberbit is offering CyberWire listeners a free live fire exercise. Sign up your team now at cyberbit.com slash cyberwire. Gossip Girl is the supra threat actor. Chronicle sees linking Stuxnet, Flame, and Dooku. Locker Goga's destructive functionality may be a feature, not a bug. Venezuela now says its power grid is being hacked by Chile and Colombia. The U.S. designates Iran's Revolutionary Guard a terrorist organization. What's up with New Zealand and hidden networked cameras? And second thoughts about what counts as a preliminary forensic investigation. From the CyberWire studios at Data Tribe, I'm Dave Bittner with your CyberWire summary for Tuesday, April 9th, 2019. Chronicle, Alphabet's security unit, has reported the results of their investigation of various strains of malware that have hit industrial systems, Stuxnet, Dooku, and Flame. Not only are some variants returning, but Chronicle sees them as connected to Gossip Girl, which it calls a supra-threat actor, a collection of threat actors interacting with one another in complex ways. This will be worth watching, not only for what may be learned about more than three troublesome strains of malware, but also to see whether Chronicle's metaphysics catches on. The researchers want, as they put it, quote, to compensate for an ontological deficiency in threat intel terminology and to investigate a collaborative umbrella of threat actors. They think that the one-on-one equivalence of a threat actor to an institution or organization has left us incapable of accurately representing multi-institution, multi-country, or multi-group orchestration in collaborative operational deployment, platform deployment, or generally complex deconfliction practices. Thus, the category of supra-threat actor. The threat researchers at Securonics have taken a close look at Locker Goga, the ransomware strain that afflicted Norsk Hydro and others. The security firm has concluded that Locker Goga's destructive functionality may well be a feature, not a bug. The exact infection mechanism isn't known, but it's probably social engineering, possibly using maliciously crafted RTF or Microsoft Word files. According to Securonics, some strains of Locker Goga change an infected system's administrator passwords and log the victims off. That's not unusual behavior for straight-up ransomware, and it suggests to the researchers that whoever's running Locker Goga may be playing, at least in some cases, a deeper game. ZDNet talked to people at FireEye's Mandiant unit about Locker Goga, and they think that even this more aggressive and destructive functionality may be consistent with ordinary criminals. 
They may not be saboteurs or nation-state intelligence services. They may be ordinary extortionists trying harder to motivate their victims to pay. Measuring the true cost of a cybersecurity incident can be tricky business. There are the obvious measurable things like downtime, unavailability, and missed revenue. But what other factors should organizations consider when calculating the potential costs? Mike O'Malley is vice president of strategy at Radware, and he sees organizations taking a more holistic approach. Previously, when we were having this discussion, say four or five years ago, you know, the discussion was about, well, what's the, you know, what is the cost of a cyber attack in terms of uh, downtime or in terms of uh, website outage or in terms of lost uh, e-commerce business or something like that. Uh, but very, you know, very direct costs, I would say. Uh, and then looking at that from an ROI perspective, of what are the costs then uh, for cybersecurity in terms of software and things like that that I want to put in place to prevent that. And what we've seen then over the last couple of years is uh, enterprises have gotten much more knowledgeable, I would say, in an unfortunate way, uh, as these breaches have become more and more common, that there are much longer-lasting impacts and uh, much longer-lasting costs beyond just the initial uh, cost of 30 minutes of downtime, right? And those things tend to be uh, shareholder lawsuits, loss of trust, uh, churn, uh, loss of brand value. You know, if you look at the case of Yahoo, you know, it actually drove down their stock price and, and cost them, you know, hundreds of millions of dollars in their in their transaction uh, when uh, when they were being sold. So, you know, there's lots of additional costs beyond just the cost of the 20 or 30 minute outage that can make the uh, that can make the value of the breach or the cost of the breach much, much higher uh, exponentially than it initially is, let's say, in the, in the first uh, you know, hours or days after the breach. What do you suppose is uh, driving the inclusion of these costs in the equation now where they weren't there before? I think the main reason is a good thing, which is these discussions have moved up to the C-level, right? They move from discussions within the CIO or the CISO group of, okay, with our particular, you know, budget uh, and investment profile to protect the business, how much, you know, money emphasis can we put into securing uh, our data and securing our applications within the IT department, the discussion has gone from there to now a brand level or a company level discussion at the C level, which is if we had a black swan event and our website went down or IP was stolen or private records were hacked, what would be the long-term impact to the business in terms of share price? What would it mean to our overall revenues? What would it mean to customer satisfaction and churn? To get a much more holistic view of that, uh, so that as part of kind of you know as part of scenario planning at the executive level, the C-suite has a much better understanding of that because what we're finding is when there are these large breaches like Target and others, it's the C-level that's held responsible now. It is the CEO and the CFO. It's not just uh, delegated to the CISO or somebody in the IT department. I think that's the big change. Now, where do you suppose we are when it comes to being able to accurately measure and predict the risk of these sorts of things? Is it still early days where we're doing a lot of guessing, or or have we we been at this long enough that we can make accurate predictions? Uh, I think we're getting much, much better. I think we are certainly able to make accurate predictions. In fact, 
you know, one of the things that's a big uh, emphasis within the industry is using now machine learning and automation, because what we're seeing is the bad guys have leveraged that now for large-scale complex attacks that, to be frank, are just too difficult for humans to combat against, right? That I have an automated enemy and I can't have a manual defense and keep up. And so security has gotten much more sophisticated to the point that many of these solutions now are becoming automated and intelligent in their own right, where they're looking at the behavior of all of your applications, looking for anomalies, and basically sorting through clues, trying to solve the mystery of are you under attack or not, right? And so they're getting much, much better at that. Uh, which you know puts the enterprise on level footing where now they have an automated response to what is a sophisticated and automated attacker. But there's no question this is going to be an ongoing struggle because it's clearly an arms race, right? The bad guys will continue to get more sophisticated and better, and the good guys are going to continue to get more sophisticated and better. But the important first step is now we're fighting fire with fire and using automation in the defense side where automation has already been in place on the attack side. That's Mike O'Malley from Radware. Venezuela's Chavista regime continues to use its failing grid as a handy stick with which to beat the neighbors. According to Colombia reports, this time, Mr. Maduro says, the cyber attacks against Venezuelan power generation and distribution are coming from Chile and Colombia. Both are, in Mr. Maduro's view, Yankee cat's paws. The allegation of cyber attack is no more plausible in its current version than it was when Caracas first came out with it. Venezuela's grid failures are quite easily explicable in terms of corruption, neglect, and decaying infrastructure. Haaretz reports that a hacktivist, Dark Coder, claims to have breached Israel's voter database as part of Op Israel. Whether Dark Coder has actually done so or simply re-gifted old breaches is unclear, Investigation is underway. So far, not much else has surfaced with respect to Op Israel. The U.S. has designated Iran's Revolutionary Guard a terrorist organization. In a speech marking the country's National Nuclear Technology Day, Iran's President Rouhani responded that the U.S. is the real terrorist group because it's allied with ISIS. This is a long-standing Iranian claim that generally has found few takers. Tehran has indeed not liked the mostly Sunni killers of ISIS, but the caliphate really hasn't been popular in any Western capitals either. The practical effect of the declaration will be to further criminalize business and other dealings with Iran. There are at least a couple of saucy hidden network cameras in the news this week, both with a New Zealand connection. We mean conceptual connection, you understand, not necessarily a network connection. For your consideration... A former Kiwi naval attaché in Washington is believed to have installed a hidden camera in an embassy's toilet. Alas, he did so with a degree of ineptitude it's difficult to credit, especially in a Navy officer. The camera he allegedly installed only took pictures of people's feet as they sat on the seat of ease, and then it just kind of broke and fell out of the ceiling, thereby blowing the gaff, or so people say. Sad. But who sweeps these embassies anyway? Don't get cocky, any of you five eyes. Add to this the experience of a New Zealand family vacationing in Ireland, as any responsible father would do when taking a holiday in the Emerald Isle, Pater, 
whose day job is InfoSec consultant. He did a quick sweep of their Airbnb. According to Naked Security's account of the incident, the tenant's sweep found a camera hidden in a smoke detector. He called Airbnb, which initially told him that he could cancel his stay, but he wouldn't be receiving a refund. He also called the owner of the house, who hung up on him. Airbnb has since apologized because, of course, undisclosed surveillance cameras are a violation of their policy, and any cameras, disclosed or not, in a bedroom or a bathroom are probably also a violation of the law. So really, security and voyeurism aren't the same thing. Maybe an artificial intelligence can't tell the difference, but it seems to us a regular human intelligence ought to know better. And speaking of artificial intelligence, the Army Research Lab has been working on an AI that, as Defense One's headline puts it, would be able to read soldiers' minds. Our military desk thinks the U.S. Army has set a pretty low bar for itself. Surely there's someone at ARL who knows that any half-aware staff sergeant can read soldiers' minds as easily as falling off a log. Or maybe ARL is working on a biomimetic program, like that mechanical dog nose the chemical sensor guys have searched for for low these many years. Never got out of 6-3, if you're wondering, or so the Pentagon budget and S&T transition desk tells us. Anywho, now this. If the Daily Beast has it right, and smart money says they are, that preliminary forensic investigation the U.S. Secret Service performed on Mar-a-Lago gatecrasher Yuxing Zhang's USB thumb drive consisted of an agent plugging it into one of his agency's computers, where some sort of unwanted program began to run. Woo, the agent shut that machine down pronto, so no harm done, right? Or maybe not much harm done, or well, maybe harm done. Who knows? Doing that with a USB drive is like eating that half-melted ice cream you found on the sidewalk. There's no five-second rule with malware. And so, Watson, the game is afoot. Miss Zhang had four cell phones, a laptop computer, an external hard drive, and a USB drive in her possession when she was detained at Mar-a-Lago. In her hotel room were found five SIM cards, nine USB drives, a fifth cell phone, that's five, count them, five, and a signal detector of the kind you might use if you were, for example, a New Zealander on a holiday at an Airbnb. And what, Watson, would be the dog that didn't bark? Ms. Zhang wasn't carrying a swimsuit, so one deduces she wasn't there for the pool party. Professor Moriarty was unavailable for comment. Elementary. Every day, your IAM tech debt grows. Your multi-generational services struggle to work together. Building an identity fabric can fix this. It makes all your identity tooling stronger and allows you to connect any app to any service you want to use with zero coding, zero maintenance, and zero app downtime. Strata's identity orchestration platform separates the identity logic from your applications so you can optimize existing IAM tools and manage them in a single control plane. Now, every vendor, standard, and architecture work together. In short, building your identity fabric means you can secure your non-standard apps, keep your complex access policies, retire outdated IDPs, and modernize in record time. So build your fabric with Strata Identity and get rid of tech debt for good. Visit strata.io slash cyberwire, share your identity priorities, and receive a pair of AirPods Pro. 
Offer valid for organizations over 5,000 employees. Connect today at strata.io slash cyberwire. The IT world used to be simpler. You only had to secure and manage environments that you controlled. Then came new technologies and new ways to work. Now, employees, apps, and networks are everywhere. This means poor visibility, security gaps, and added risk. That's why Cloudflare created the first-ever connectivity cloud. Visit cloudflare.com to protect your business everywhere you do business. And joining me once again is Joe Kerrigan. He's from the Johns Hopkins University Information Security Institute. He's also my co-host on the Hacking Humans podcast. Joe, it's great to have you back. It's good to be back, Dave. You have got a story uh, this week about uh, some studies that some folks did about permissions on various mobile operating systems. What's going on right, here? This is on iOS app permissions. This is from Wondera. Okay. And uh, they have looked at 30,000 apps and found that uh, a lot of them request permissions that you may not be aware they're, they're requesting. Mm. The point of the of the study is we often download these apps and we go through uh, the permission process like with just a click. It's like a pencil whipping. You know, you're just going to go ahead and and say, "Yep, I agree to these things." Yeah. But clicking on the EULA, right? And yeah. th- <laughs> and this is a perennial issue that we like to talk about. But this one, this study is is pretty pretty good in its breakdown. Okay. 62% of these apps requested access to your photo library. 54% requested a- access to your camera. 50- out of, out of 30,000 apps. Out of 30,000 apps, okay. right. And these are a mixture of paid and unpaid or free apps. Right? Okay, yeah. And 51% asked for your location when it's in use. Mm. Yeah. Right? Mm. So one of the things they, they talk about in the study is how often do you take a picture of a whiteboard when mm. you're at, at work? Right, just to save an idea so it doesn't get... Right. Before someone else comes along and erases it, exactly. you take a you picture. You, or you have you have an office policy that you have to erase the whiteboard before uh, before it's gone. Well, that's intellectual property. And if I have an app that's not on the up and up, I may not be violating any of the app store's rules. Mm-hmm. I just may be collecting information about what people write on whiteboards. Well, you may be right. violating the rules of your company if that app is has access to your photos, right? right. Yeah, you may be in uh, deliberately... Uh, exfiltrating data from your company, mm-hmm. right? That, that use case is a serious possibility. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Uh, the article, we've, seen, we've seen plenty of uh, examples of that where uh, someone will take an innocent photograph of somebody standing in front of a some terminal or something and mm-hmm. written on a sticky note on the monitor, it says <laughs> it has the IP address, username, and password. Right, right. yeah. <laughs> written we've, out we've seen that. The, yeah. the interesting part about the iOS permissions is that in iOS, if something doesn't access your personal information, it doesn't need the permission. So if if an iOS app needs uh, internet permission, it it just gets it. When you would do an installation, it doesn't ask. It assumes internet permission is implied. Right. It doesn't ask for that specifically. The iOS doesn't even recognize it as a permission. If I an see. App, if an app wants it, an app gets it. Right. Okay. So the article goes on to make a couple of recommendations. Regularly check your app permissions and settings. Mm-hmm. Now you and I just did this before we recorded this, right. and it's it's actually really simple. I'm an Android user. I have a, a Google Pixel three. Um, with, uh, I think, Pi, whatever their cutesy little name for their operating system is. Yeah. Uh, and in settings, you go to apps, and then down at the bottom, there's a, 
advanced and you click on permissions and it really breaks it down very simply for you. Yeah. Buy the permission and you can click on the permission and then you can see the list of apps that that you have installed and which apps are using that permission right now. Right. Like, and, and we did this beforehand, and I went through the microphone permission and revoked the right of Instagram and Facebook Messenger to have access to my microphone. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Because I don't want them listening to me and then serving me ads, Dave. <laughs> stop. Stop. <laughs> you just stop. You're fired. Go away. Ladies and gentlemen, it's sad. This will be the last appearance of Joe Kerrigan on the CyberWire podcast. <laughs> no, there's, there's plenty of studies that say that's not the case. Um, yeah, and on iOS, it's, it's similarly quite right. easy. You go to the privacy settings, but... It's a good to, you know, hey, set yourself a reminder or something, you know, once a month yeah. on your calendar. Go through, just review, go check your privacy settings. Make sure nobody's doing stuff you don't want them to do. You have to be vigilant. Yep. All yes, right. you do. Yeah. Well, Joe Kerrigan, as always, thanks for joining us. It's my pleasure, Dave. Are lengthy security reviews pulling attention away from your security program? With the largest network of trust centers, Vanta can help you streamline security reviews to win customer trust, save time, and close deals fast. Proactively demonstrate security by showcasing key resources like your SOC 2 or ISO 27001 and provide real-time evidence for passing controls. And when a security questionnaire is required, Vanta takes the first pass for you. Visit vanta.com cyber to take a self-serve tour. That's vanta.com slash cyber. And that's the Cyberwire. For links to all of today's stories, check out our daily briefing at thecyberwire.com. And for professionals and cybersecurity leaders who want to stay abreast of this rapidly evolving field, sign up for Cyberwire Pro. It'll save you time and keep you informed. Listen for us on your Alexa smart speaker, too. The CyberWire podcast is proudly produced in Maryland out of the startup studios of Data Tribe, where they're co-building the next generation of cybersecurity teams and technologies. Our amazing CyberWire team is Elliot Peltzman, Peru Prakash, Stefan Vaziri, Kelsey Bond, Tim Nodar, Joe Kerrigan, Carol Terrio, Ben Yellen, Nick Vilecki, Gina Johnson, Bennett Moe, Chris Russell, John Petrick, Jennifer Iben, Rick Howard, Peter Kilpie, and I'm Dave Bittner. Thanks for listening. We'll see you back here tomorrow. And now a word from our sponsor, SpyCloud, the leader in operationalizing cybercrime analytics. Traditional threat intelligence is a thing of the past. Cyber criminals are stealing vast amounts of credentials, session cookies, and financial data every day, and it's hard to keep up. SpyCloud is the trusted partner businesses turn to to fully understand their darknet exposure risk and neutralize threats before it's too late. SpyCloud alerts your organization as soon as an employee or customer's data appears on the darknet, so you can act faster than bad actors to prevent cyber attacks like ransomware, session hijacking, account takeover, and online fraud. With insights from the industry's largest repository of recaptured data, protect the digital identities and systems most important to your business. Get your free corporate darknet exposure report at spycloud.com slash cyberwire and see what information criminals have in their hands today. 
That's spycloud.com slash cyberwire. (laughs) 